So, Paul, you've um, led world-class creatives on the world stage. What have you learned from that experience that perhaps could be of value to us today? Trust is vital. When there's an explosion of temperament, digging down and finding out what's really going on so that you're actually able to deal with the cause of it rather than just the symptom. Hello. Our guest today is Paul Hughes, former director of the BBC Symphony Orchestra and Chorus and the BBC Singers. In his illustrious 23-year career at the BBC, Paul led the orchestra on international tours, launched educational and outreach programmes and oversaw major cultural and artistic changes to its style. Today, as a senior programming and mentoring advisor at the LEAD Foundation, Paul uses his expertise in programming, strategic planning and leadership to bolster the emerging careers of the next generation, in both music and beyond. I'm Robert Diggings, and this is Highly Relational, the podcast about creating, leading and developing great teams at work, along with all the joys and perils of exceptional and sustainable human collaboration. We have one simple aim, to help you create world-class teams wherever you are and wherever you work. In our conversation today, Paul highlights the importance of constructive criticism and why you shouldn't take any bullshit, how leadership can be fluid when everyone understands the team values and mission, and how building trust in your brand can allow you to experiment and be bold. And this is why you should ask for forgiveness, not permission. Just as every orchestra needs its conductor to coordinate, unite and inspire, so too does a business team need its leader in order to collaborate brilliantly together. But leading a team, like perhaps conducting an orchestra, is about so much more than overseeing and controlling. It's about listening, feeling, supporting and adapting to the unforeseen to bring out the very best in each of its players. There could be no one better than my remarkable guest today to tell us how to do this and perhaps bring some much-needed harmony to the corporate workplace. I began by asking Paul, so what are the similarities between a business team and an orchestra or choir? Both are teams in their own way and both are interdependent. For example, the management team of an orchestra can't do what they do without there being an orchestra there. And the orchestra largely can't do everything that needs to be done without the management team to support them. If there's any skill in it, it's in encapsulating and articulating that mutuality, if you like, the interdependence of everything in terms of delivering a successful artistic outcome. So it might look like two teams, the old-fashioned them and us, the management and the workers. But in actual fact, in an orchestra, for it to succeed and really be effective, everybody has to be on the same page and everybody has to understand what what the mission is, what the goal is, what success looks like, whether you're playing a double bass or whether you're working in the education department or the production department. And your role as director of the BBC Symphony Orchestra and the BBC Chorus is in a business context, you would be the CEO of that business unit. Is that is that how you would see it? Or um, Yes, is that I, right? would, I would say so. I'm, I am the, in my orchestral structure, and it varies from orchestra to orchestra, I was responsible for the 
overall artistic offering as well. So the music that was played, the artists that we would work with, the soloists, the conductors, the composers whose music we would play, the tours and so on and so forth. But also within that management team, I would have specialists in marketing, finance, education, production, radio production, stage management, and so on and so forth. And the job is to articulate what the mission is, to bring everybody on board, and basically to get out of the way and let them get on with it. I mean, I tend to lead rather than push. I like to sort of let the team tell them what needs to be done, listen to what they think needs to be done, and then really just get out of the way. For example, when we're away on, on an international tour somewhere, the management team always say, okay, you're here for two reasons, to do the schmoozing, and if anybody gets sick, you have to take them to hospital. And you know, think, okay, fine, that's okay, I know my role. Did you feel you had two teams, a business and management team, and an orchestral and artistic team? Or in your mind, was it just one thing? And how did you navigate that is really what I'm asking. Well, over the course of the 23 years that I was at the BBC Symphony Orchestra and previously in other orchestras, that culture changed over time to one where the the understanding of the mutual interdependency of the players and what they do and the management team of what they do and the respect across those two was really what led to it being one team. And it can only ever be one team. Even if you're sitting around a table negotiating with the union, you know, you're sitting around a circular table rather than either side of a square table because we're all after the same goal. And that, I think, is is absolutely essential. And, I, I, you know, I have seen one orchestra that I, I, I ran many years ago in, in Scotland. At the time I took it over, the, the, the problems of the orchestra had been played out on the front page of the local paper for, for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And it was all about the orchestra. And the management team were completely marginalised and completely demotivated, you know, and feeling really like, you know, they, they, they had just been sidelined. So bringing that back together again was was one of the main goals, if you like, in terms of building bridges and repairing that operation and bringing that sense of self-worth, self-confidence back to the whole team. It's what I was talking about earlier on, where that sort of sense of respect, when you're dealing with world-class creatives, you have to understand that they do an extraordinary job, even though they might come to work and they, you know, the kids have lost their shoe on the way to school or whatever it might be. When they get there, they are having to deliver something of extraordinary quality every single time. And so they are do have certain requirements, if you like. But I always think, you know, lines have to be drawn sometimes and bullshit not taken. So I think from my point of view, I mean, I love working with musicians. If you understand them, you understand how they work and you gain their trust, then the possibilities are endless for the kind of projects one can do. I really like the way you describe the people that you used to lead and the, I get a sense of the, the love and the passion for the work that you did uh, in the BBC. Yes, it's easy to think that the management team are not creative, but they are massively creative because yeah. they're solving problems all the time. And when there's a fantastic concert and then there's a full audience and you can sense that, that buzz in the audience then nobody is happier than the team itself, the management team, you know, sitting there thinking, yeah, it was a great show, really good. And when, you know, I try and get backstage when the orchestra comes off stage one by one, and you can tell in an instant, you know, they're smiling from shoulder to shoulder and thinking, yeah, that was a good show, we did well. 
Tell me about, let's explore this metaphor, because I'm interested in how far we can take it, of the conductor and the orchestra, or the conductor and the, and the choir. Yeah. How would you describe your relationship to the conductors that you worked with? Uh, so this, the, the CEO business, the director role that you had, yes. and the conductor, what, what, what would you say about that and how to set it up for success? What I think is, if it's not unique, it's unusual in an orchestral context compared to a, a, another business context, is that each block of work, there is a, this person called the conductor who comes in maybe for a few days, maybe for a week, maybe for two weeks, whatever. And it might be somebody they've seen regularly for 10 years or it might be somebody that they've never seen before. And so two things need to happen, if you like. I need to have created the culture within the orchestra for them to be open to that to be able to to move quickly in response to somebody they've never seen before and deliver a world-class product. But also I need to be identifying conductors who I think have something interesting to say, but who I think would work well with this particular orchestra. And it's like dating, really. You know, it's it can work perfectly well here in this orchestra, and in that orchestra it just doesn't work at all. It's not technical. It's chemistry. It's personalities. It's about people. And so if I'm sitting on a, a competition jury for conductors or I'm doing a lot of mentoring around the world with young conductors, you know, this, for them, it's the end of the world if a conductor doesn't, you know, if, if an orchestra doesn't enjoy working with them or if they don't get invited back. But it's not, it's just chemistry. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And the job, if you like, is to score more highly the ones that do work than that don't work. Yes. And particularly when you're looking for a chief conductor who is your your principal conductor, the title conductor, the one around which you build the high-profile projects, whose job it is to, to raise the base level of the orchestra up all the time so that when a guest conductor comes in, that base level is already established. And I just love to see that happen, to see that grow, to see a conductor grow, to see an orchestra grow, and to see that relationship flourish. And, of course, sometimes it doesn't. And no matter how much you want it to, it just doesn't. And that's that's fine. That's life. And what you said at the beginning of that answer was around your responsibility in setting up the culture within, in this instance, the orchestra, to be able to work with different conductors, yes. some some of whom they know and some of whom they don't. Tell us how you approach that. What what? How did you deliver that? Well, particularly with with bringing young conductors in and giving them the opportunity to to work with a great orchestra. When I first joined the BBC Symphony Orchestra, there were quite a number of players that had been there for a long time who felt that this was a great orchestra, and that these youngsters, they should be learning their job somewhere else and not coming in here and, and you know, buggering it up with, with a, a world-class orchestra, you know. And it's like anything. If you're trying to learn an instrument, you're going to learn much better if you've got a decent violin than if you've got a really crappy one. Now, I... On the other hand, conductors will learn an awful lot by working with orchestras that are less good because they have to identify problems and fix them quickly. But anyway, the point is that one then eventually creates the understanding that shaping the conductors of the future, the people that are going to be standing up in front of them in the future, is a huge responsibility that every member of the orchestra has a part to play. Don't just sort of wait for them to learn their craft somewhere else and then be brought in and then say yes or no, liked it, didn't like it. But actually help invest, grow, nurture these these relationships and make, you know, constructive criticism, constructive remarks, feedback, which is a very sensitive area for musicians and especially conductors. 
So creating that environment in which there is an understanding, actually, you're probably right, we do need to be seeing the new conductors, the ones, the new kids on the block, particularly now with, with uh, so much more emphasis on, on women conductors. And there are so many really interesting women conductors. Suddenly you just think this is a viable career option for women as well as for men. And your options are, are, are manifold, so much more than they were before. And that's very exciting. Mm. Beautiful. And and now let's look at the other side of the conductor-orchestra relationship uh, and how how you would define that. What are the elements that support it working? And whether or not you believe the, the metaphor of the conductor as being the leader of a team is valuable? And if so, to what, what are the constraints of that metaphor working? My role and that of the, of, the, of the team is to create the culture in which the orchestra can do its best work. From the time the conductor steps onto the podium, you know, my job, I have to stand back and let them get on with it. And their job then is to, to make music in the best possible way that they can. And they might be a young conductor conducting a piece for the first time, standing in front of 90 people who have played it many, many more times. But that doesn't mean to say that they're going to sort of sit there and wait for you to trip up. They want to do a good job because if they do a good job, if you do a good job, everybody's happy. I've heard it said that orchestras will deliberately try and trip up conductors. I have never in my career seen that. The default setting, and sometimes we've had a conductor standing on the podium, they're like a Dutch windmill where one of the sails has fallen off. You know, they're about as much used as a fifth leg on a cow. And then the orchestra really needs to pull together and and work and listen and follow the leader and really, really... Uh, and that's when a great orchestra that's used to playing together all the time really comes into its own. But, you know, if I have any job at all, it's to make sure that those people don't find their way onto the podium. But for a variety of reasons, they do from time to time. If we take out the conductor from, say, the BBC Symphony Orchestra, is there a leader within the orchestra? yes. Can you say a little bit? Because what, what interests me about what you've said so far is that leadership seems to be moving around. So in a, in a corporate intact team, yes. it's clear who the leader is and, they, and, and it doesn't move around in quite the same way that you're describing. So there's you leading the whole endeavour. There's a conductor coming in maybe for a few days, maybe for months, who's leading the creative and artistic work. And then... Tell me more about this leader who is in the orchestra well, well, the, themselves. The, the structure of an orchestra, taking a standard-sized symphony orchestra, so anywhere between 80, 85, 90, 95 players, whatever, it's highly structured. It might look like it's not, you know, because all these players, they come trooping in, you know, and they sit down. But there is an, an understanding through the culture, through experience and through training of how an orchestra works. So you've got the concertmaster who sits in the first violin seat, and that is the most important conduit between the conductor and the orchestra but then you have the section principles so the first trumpet the first timpanist the principal cello whatever it might be and then you have the sub principles that sit next to them so it's it's highly structured and everybody understands how it works and depending on what the piece is you know who you need to be listening to who you need to be looking at and I sat in the orchestra one time I haven't done it very often you know one doesn't often get the chance to sit in the orchestra during a rehearsal and I just, I had a profound wake-up call to how much noise is actually going on. 
And how do they actually interpret all the signs that are coming at them all the time? Visual, audio signs, the conductor conducting what they're listening for, what they're hearing. Well, there's this massive noise. It's an extraordinary, highly specialised team. I imagine it's like a, a, a surgeon operating and everybody knows exactly what they need to do at the right time. And that's the job of the conductor, really, to bring it all together. And the, the job of the management team, if you like, is to create that environment in which everybody can do their best work. And my job is to lead the team in order to do that. So it is very hierarchical, but at the same time, it's not top down. It has to be, it has to be organic. And do you, th do you think that the orchestra itself, see, it's large compared yeah. to a, an exec, an intact exec team, mm -hmm. even large compared to the UK but capital. There are smaller orchestras and they mm. operate in similar ways. Do they see themselves, would they talk about themselves or describe themselves as a team or is that not how that would be held for, for no, most the, of them? They absolutely would. They would absolutely describe themselves as a team, possibly even as a family because, you know, they probably spend more time with them than they do at home. And particularly when one's away on tour in, in a far-flung place, you know, Asia or Australia, wherever it might be, then you really see how, how an orchestra works as an individual. You get the people, and the BBC Symphony Orchestra is a very welcoming and friendly orchestra. And the people that, who are not staff musicians, but the ones who come in as freelancers just for a particular project, they are welcomed in in exactly the same way because, you know, they're all musicians. If we've got kids coming in and sitting in amongst the orchestra playing with us on an education project, they're treated as fellow musicians, even if they're seven years old and they can barely hold the violin. And that, that is a culture that, I, you know, I and the team had worked very, very hard to, to create and to change over time. I'm making some connections with last week's podcast with Tony Llewellyn, mm. who is a, a, an expert in multi-stakeholder teams and major projects. You know, he, 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 and it's kind of well known that the ideal, supposedly the ideal size of a human team is about six to eight people. You're dealing with a very large team. And in some ways you're dealing with team, uh, the orchestra <laughs> is a team of teams. I mean, that's an interesting way of putting it. It is a team of teams because... You know, my, my direct, I think I had about, with the BBC singers and the chorus as well, I probably had about eight direct reports. Underneath them, they had their own teams, and it might be the, the library and the radio team and so on and so on and so forth. So, yes, it is a team within a team, and the, the key to success, I suppose, is making sure that everybody knows what needs to be done. Do the, um, the musicians and the singers understand and pay attention to the corporate, the business side, or are they more into the art and the music because that is their role? The job, I think, of managing a, a high-performing team like an orchestra, either within the, the culture of the BBC or, or just generally the cultural life of the UK, is giving them enough information so that they know what's going on around them, both immediately around them and in the wider economy politically, as far as it affects the culture, if you like. But not so much that you produce huge degrees of anxiety that they then can't perform at the highest level. And that, that balancing act is constant. But, you know, I have found that the way that I have been able to get trust and support for even difficult decisions and difficult moments is by being completely open in terms of communication with the orchestra. So when we've had difficult times, when we've had budget cuts, when we've had to close posts... There is no value in my book in just trying to sort of do that secretly to yourself and then dumping it on them. 
tell people what is happening, tell them what we need to do, and and let's all work on it together. And that has produced enormous benefits in terms of the culture of the organisation, because within the BBC, the BBC is now a very top-down organisation. Everything comes from the top. There's precious little organic discussion and development, if you like. And it didn't always used to be like that. But within the symphony orchestra, I think we tried very much to make sure that everybody knew what was going on. So I would speak regularly with the, the, the union steward, regularly with my management team, regularly with the chairman of the orchestra or chairwoman of the orchestra. And basically, it's like an informal health check all the time. It's, I just, I, I love that when, when, when one goes in and maybe it's just in a break or just before, you know, before a rehearsal is about to start or something like that, you know, the kind of conversations you have and pick up and the information that you can give out, that's worth more than any formal meeting. Hmm. When often people don't feel comfortable saying what they really want to say in public, they'll probably trot up to the office later and say, actually, I just wanted to say this, but I didn't want to say it down there. I know it's a cliche, but I always had a door open policy. And if it was closed, it was for a very good reason. But most of the time, if somebody knocked on the door and wanted to come in and talk about something, we would talk about it. You make time, you listen. It's so important. I mean, my question about almost trying to slice it up around art and money is is somewhat clumsy and and naive because... Of course, money and art have gone together uh, for, for millennium. Uh, and, well, not enough money and art have gone together for. <laughs> yes, well, indeed. So navigating that, some every, everyone, every, it's a profession. Everyone is, yeah. in, everybody understands that these two things have to work in some form. They do very much so, and and one sees in some organisations with with enormous boards full of you know wealthy patrons or business people and who have run successful you know, widget factories or whatever it might be. In order to run an arts organisation, an orchestra is just as good an example as any, you have to have the ability to suspend your disbelief for long enough to be able to do it. Because on paper, it it doesn't make sense. A successful concert is one that loses less money than an unsuccessful one. That's why, you know, since for hundreds and hundreds of years, the arts have been subsidised by by the state, by the patron, by the king, the court by rich individuals, every country has its own version of that. And there are very few major arts organisations that run entirely, well, it just wouldn't work financially. And so that's why, you know, I and, and my colleagues who run running all the orchestras, uh, you know, it, around the world that I, that I know, I say I think we do a fantastic job because not many other people do. You know, people don't understand how orchestras work and because... Sometimes you, you, you know, you lose money and you lose money that wasn't expected. The automatic assumption is that actually if we put a business person in there, it, you know, that wouldn't happen. Well, no, because they simply wouldn't understand what the most important thing is. And the most important thing is the quality of the product and the relationship with the audience. And, and in that respect... Of course, all consumer, all businesses creating products have a, have a customer. Yeah. But... There is something very exposed about artistic creation because the product is intended to be consumed and, and enjoyed by many, many people. And, and also there are lots of professional critics who are interested in trying to work out whether this is better than that. And yeah. what's it like 
leading a, a, a business or a, or a team where the quality of the output is so continually on show? There's well, nowhere to hide, is no, there? That's, a, a, that's a really interesting question. And um, I, I have a, a friend in the business who used to be um, the head of press and comms at the, at the symphony orchestra. And she always said, you know, we get far more column inches for the BBC Symphony Orchestra because you do the unusual repertoire that you do. And I think it's absolutely essential that, that, that the, if you like, the artistic vision is not only front and centre, but it's, it's articulated so that everybody knows what the proposition is. So you don't, you're not misleading your audience. And it might take a while. I'll give you an example. When I first joined the BBC Symphony Orchestra, it was in the days when you used to advertise the concerts in panels in newspapers, you know, it would say on Monday it was this and Tuesday it was that and blah, blah, blah. And I said to the, the, the marketing manager, you know, you, you haven't put any of the new pieces in, any of the commissions. No, came the answer, because if we do that, people don't come. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. That is our USP. That, that is what the symphony orchestra was set up to do in 1930. And we do it better than anybody else. We should be leading on that. And so we did, in, not, not necessarily in terms of changing the artistic direction, but in terms of changing how we communicated it to the public so that you weren't sort of trying to slide the broccoli under the mashed potato and hope people wouldn't notice it. You actually said, this is what we're about. We, you know, we're, we're commissioning the, some of the greatest music of the 20th and 21st century and presenting it. And what's more exciting, in my view, than, than presenting something that nobody has ever heard before. Therefore, you know, you might put on an obscure program with really unusual pieces, maybe a thousand people, whatever, if you're lucky. But they're all there because they know exactly what they're, they're coming to. They're not misled. I thought I was coming to a Mozart night, you know, and they're doing this stuff. That's never been our style. From a business point of view, the, another element of what you've done, the, the repertoire that you talk about, you've also done extraordinary collaborations, collaborative work with other really world-class writers and performers. In a business context, that would be probably talked about as partnerships. And there is a, a body of thought amongst um, entrepreneurs that partnershiping is the absolute way for, to, for success. So... Tell us about the collaborations that you made happen and why, how they came about and why you, why you felt they were so important. I, I, to my absolute toenails, I'm a natural collaborator. Like most things in life, it's more fun if you do it with somebody else. So, for example, with 22 years at the Barbican Centre, the orchestra had an extraordinarily close relationship in order to put things on that neither of us could have done independently. That's just one example. But, you know, one's collaborating all the time. If you go to and do a concert in a concert hall or you're working with a, a record company or a tour promoter or something like that, it is a collaboration. But things like when we did concerts with Jules Buckley and Laura Mavula or Moses Sumney or, or Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, or the writer Neil Gaiman, Zadie Smith, the Monty Python team, when I first joined the orchestra, none of this would have been possible because they thought, we're a symphony orchestra, what are you doing? We don't do this kind of stuff. However, if you change that culture to one where you are trusted to provide really valuable, interesting, high-quality events that don't make them look stupid, that patently bring in a completely different new audience, and they understand why and how fantastic it is that the BBC Symphony Orchestra is playing to these people that have never heard a symphony orchestra before. So you understand why you're doing it and that it's going to be of absolutely the highest possible quality. Then the orchestra loves it. And when we do the concerts with 
you know, Neil Gaiman and, and David Tennant came on as a guest artist. And just the place is, of course, packed with people to see the people that they love, whether it's Brian Cox talking about the planets or the Monty Python team celebrating their 40th anniversary. These are kind of things which are gold dust to a modern symphony orchestra because you're not compromising the quality of what you're doing, but you are reaching a completely new audience. And you're not trying to drag them into your Brahms cycle or your Beethoven series or whatever it is. You're actually creating really bespoke, high-quality orchestral experiences for that audience. And that's the thrill, I think. I remember the first time we did one of these projects with an author. It was with David Sedaris. And it came about because I'm a big Sedaris fan and I was sitting listening to his radio program one day and I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if we could do this? You know, you just need to have that kind of idea. And then... You know, you go after it like a terrier at a bone and you don't take no for an answer until until it happens. And then his agent, not quite so sure, who is this orchestra, what's going on? You know, so there was another relationship that need to be, needed to be developed. And that led on to a whole load of other things. So having those ideas and being tenacious about it, I think, is one of the, one of the uh, most enjoyable parts of the job, for me anyway. Well, and it's also holding the, the vision of the value and the potential that's held, that you can see and hold in yeah. those collaborations. And at that um, time, for... having the support of certain key people within the BBC to do those, because, of course, they needed to have a broadcast outcome. You know, and most of the time, most of the BBC has no idea what the Symphony Orchestra is doing. And yet when you, when you engage with a, a famous writer, suddenly different stations take a look at it and think, actually, this is really interesting. You're doing a project with Zadie Smith. Ooh, okay, yes, we'll do that. But in a way, you have to do it first. I suppose one of my mantras as a, manage, as a manager, as a leader, is to ask for forgiveness rather than for permission. If you're absolutely sure that you, you know what you're doing is going to be good and is going to bring credit to the and distinctiveness to the BBC offering. And in public service terms, that is absolutely essential. It's got to be distinctive. And in that, I think we've heard how you are a creative leader and how you you might not be playing in the orchestra that you lead, but you are bringing enormous amounts of creative vision to the role of director of the orchestra. Yes, for me, that's absolutely essential. I know that in other countries, for example, in the United States, the management team is structured in a different way and the the drive, if you like, of the artistic product is doesn't necessarily sit with the person at the top of the organisation. That would never suit me. One of the things we really want to do as part of Highly Relational is offer people actionable ideas, things that they could try this afternoon or tomorrow in a meeting. Can you give us some pointers as to what, what someone could do differently that would bring some of what you've done over the last 23 years to their business? So it's something for people to think about rather than to do. And that is to understand when people ask you, what is your leadership style? And you think, oh, what is my leadership style? For me, the leadership style varies enormously depending on whether I'm talking to a politician, a musician, you know, my family, whatever it might be. But the values that you as a leader espouse have to be consistent, whoever you're talking to. And I think how you are your authentic self in terms of the values, whether that's, you know, 
transparency, trust, communication, honesty, fairness, loyalty. These are the values that, that I espouse very highly and have stood me in good stead. But my leadership style varies enormously depending on who I'm talking to. But those values have to be consistent. And without that, you're sending out so many different messages to a team whose values you also want to share. And I think it's very important to just every now and again, take a stock check of, you know, am I applying those values consistently in everything that I do, whether it's recruiting a player, dealing with a performance management issue, dealing with a funding body, a sponsor, whatever it might be. Beautifully put. And thank you so much for your time and for coming to our studio uh, today, Paul. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. I've really enjoyed it, Robert. Thank you for asking me. And um, I look forward to hearing it. I might learn something. (laughs) The All The Notes, necessarily in the right order, Paul Hughes. Thank you so much for joining me today. You've been listening to Highly Relational. Check out the show notes for more information about today's guest and the topics covered. And if you're enjoying these conversations and getting value from them, do please give us a like or rate wherever you're listening or watching. And of course, there's no better way to support what we're doing than by subscribing. I'd like to thank today's studio engineer at Spiritland Studio King's Cross, Tom Ross. Our researcher is Ella Halsell and the series producer is Ollie Giu. I'm Robert Diggings. Thanks for listening and goodbye.